1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord was kind enough, um, did not give us daughters that we would uh, be able to raise, but he did give us daughters that would be able to love, and so very grateful for Olivia and for the gift of her, and uh, especially those two, yeah, the little ones, wow, they're awesome. Um, we are, we are now, so thank you for reading, we are now going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 as we close our series on, um, on the issue of love. And I would like to take a step back and just try to help you understand like how all of this comes together with the express purpose of helping you see that what we desire is not just to teach about this or to preach about this or to look about this, study this, and then to kind of check the box and move on. But to realize, and this is, I think, true of any, um, any biblical passage, is that there is something that we are going to learn, and hopefully there is going to be something that we are going to apply, but we're going to have to keep going back to this over and over and over again. Um, and so what we felt compelled to look at on this issue of love is just seeing, yeah, this is a constant theme that happens in the Bible, and I hear people talking about it a lot. You know, we really need to be more loving. We really need to be more caring. And then when I ask, what does that mean? Like, what does that really look like? In my own thinking, and when I'm hearing other people talk about it, it's more of just a regurgitation of, of what the culture says. And so in the end, it, it either looks really like tough and arrogant and not in the biblical sense, or it looks really kind of soft and not very uh, helpful or beneficial, and that's more like a cultural expression. And so what I love about Scripture is it, um, it, it reveals, right? That's what revelation is. It's the revelation of the truth about God and the truth about ourselves and the truth about this really powerful thing called love and say, listen, there's got to be something more than just a movie can present. There's got to be something more than just a song can describe that truly love, when it is described scripturally, is described in relationship, God's relationship with us, our relationship with one another. And so therefore, this is what it looks like. 
And so our series broke down like this, two messages describing God as the source of all love and that God loves us and he doesn't do so out of any, any uh, kind of a, a compulsion. Um, it's not a need that he has and I just need to be loved. That is, that is a dangerous, it's true, but that's a dangerous thing. God doesn't need to be loved like that. He is so full He is so complete, he is so perfect, that the love he gives is genuinely free. It is is his character. That's why John says that God is love. And that's how he acts and that's how he responds. The greatest picture of that, we learned, was God's love for us by sending his son to die for us. That Jesus becomes this beautiful picture of while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is what love looks like. And so we are going to look at Jesus, particularly Jesus on the cross, but the entire life of Jesus. This is how love interacts. This is how love speaks. This is how love responds. So that you and I aren't just copying some kind of cultural trend, which can sometimes be really tough when the times need it, or really, really soft when the times are almost deceptively easy. But instead, it's like, no, this is the way that love is. And the Bible presents a rather clear and consistent picture. This is how God has loved us. This is how we should love one another. And so this is going to teach us, which, so after the first two weeks were done, then we spent four weeks looking at uh, what what we described, like the paradoxical nature of love. Hopefully what you desire when you're searching the truth is not some quick answer or some kind of reduced way of looking at something, the least common denominator kind of mentality. Instead, what we should be doing is saying, no, there's there's probably more. There's more to learn. There's more to know. There's more to do. And in that sense, it's not as simple as love speaks the truth, but just does it with a nicer tone. No. The Bible actually says that sometimes love speaks, and then sometimes love is silent, Sometimes it doesn't even need to say anything. It trusts. Okay, huh, that's, that's, that's going to take some discernment. So when do I, yep, no, we're going to have to grow up and grow into this thing called love. And we learned that love has a jealousy to it. Well, but isn't jealousy like a negative term? Well, yeah, mostly. But jealousy is described in the Bible. God is jealous. He is jealous of those things which are rightfully his. And I think it's good for us as parents to say, yeah, I'm going to care for this family. I'm going to be jealous for the, for the protection of my, of my family. I'm going to be jealous for the protection of my children. I'm going to be, there's a sense in which that concept is what love actually looks like. And yet it's never envious. Like it, it's that sense, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's not self-seeking. It's not destructive, so it's protective, but it's not destructive. Well, how do you do that? How do you know that? Yeah, it's, honestly, love is is for, like, maturing people, and we're growing into this. We, We learned that love is clearly an action, right? It's clearly an action, but to try to deny the emotive, the, the kind of the emotional uh, spring from which it comes is just, it's, it's not true. And so the Bible speaks about love, and this is what we do, and this is how we act, and this is how we respond, and this is how we feel, and how we should feel. And this is what it means to love God and others, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a yes. Is it a love, or is it, or is it an emotion, or is it an action? Yes. And then last week we learned that love is a, it, it, it costs, it demands. 
And yet it's also this incredible gift. So that is what love is. And we thought, what would be better than for us to just go to what we traditionally know as the love chapter? So 1 Corinthians 13 is where we're going to go. Now, by the way, it's really not, um, in terms of like the number of times love is used in a chapter, 1 John 4 has more love language in it than anywhere else. But 1 Corinthians 13 is the one that we all know. And so we're going to go there today to just take a look one last time and say, what is, what is love and what is it going to demand? And, and how do we then look at our relationships beginning with God and then looking at others? And how do we allow a biblical informed definition of love challenge us, mold us, shape, recenter us instead of us just being caught culturally or caught by our personality, right? I hear a lot about that. That's just kind of who I am. That's how I love. I need to be able to free to be loved the way that I, that I love. Well, sure. No, nobody wants you to be someone other than you. God made you to be you in the image of Jesus Christ, right? So it's yes and. It's just not that simple. So it is about that kind of conformity, which means when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, it is primarily good for you and I to realize that this chapter was given to us um, to a, to a, as, a, as a church, this isn't a chapter, hey, Jim, Andrea, I want you to love like this because, you know, you're, you're in love. So since you're in love, you should love like this. Um, this is a typical chapter that is read, at least parts of it, usually not all that stuff about prophecy and speaking in tongues. Um, but the other, the definition part, that's something that we read at weddings. Because that's where um, a, a husband and a wife have determined that they're going to love one another and they're going to vow that they're going to love one another and they're going to stay with it. And so, that, by the way, this is what you've agreed to. So are you in? And that's really like a place in which First, First Corinthians 13 can apply. That's not why it was written. It was actually written to a church. And you would even think, like with how this section is being written, that you might just think, wow, things might be going relatively well well, they're really not. This chapter is actually not written like, oh, it's written to a church that is really struggling with some things. Here's one of the things that they're struggling with. They're struggling with arrogance. They're new believers in some sense. They're new believers. So they're following Jesus and they're still trying to figure out what that looks like. And they want to be spiritual, but they're still trying to figure out what that looks like. And so they bring a lot of the competitiveness from their culture into their church relationships. And, and they got different people that they think communicate the gospel better, communicate the spiritual life better. And so they've got like a pecking order. And the Apostle Paul describes, yeah, here's what I hear. I hear that some of you are going, wow, I'm a follower of Peter. Yeah, well, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of, of Apollos. And then the most spiritual of the group, I'm a follower of Jesus. Trump card. And, and Paul says, here's what's wrong with all of that. It's broken. Like you're, you're acting like a Christian in a worldly way. That's convicting, isn't it? You're acting like a Christian, but in a worldly way. Like you're talking about spiritual things, but you're doing it in a worldly way. There is something that is foundationally broken. And what is coming to the table is arrogance. Pride and arrogance. Well, shouldn't we be proud of our teachers? Sure. 
But can you tell that the kind of pride that you're exhibiting, the way that you're saying that, I'm a follower of Peter, I'm a follower, is that you're pitting brothers against themselves. You're, you're pitting God's family one against one another. Can you not tell that that arrogance is causing problems and division? Do you not know that something is broken by the way that you're treating one another? And that's why Paul doesn't go, can't you guys just get along why don't you just be kinder to each other or nicer to each other? No, what he, what he essentially says is, is that, listen, what you need to know is that we are all one, and then this is how we then operate. And he offers chapter, chapter 13 as a way in which they will now look at each other, the way they will treat one another, and it will then address this particular problem that he talked about in a previous chapter. This is a church that loves to talk about the freedom that they have in Christ. And, and there are some that are using that freedom to act in very sinful ways. And the Apostle Paul calls it out and actually has some really, really tough things to say. Paul says, listen, like you can't just embrace that kind of lifestyle because it will corrupt everything. And you need to make a stand and you need to have tough conversations. Because the way that you're acting and the way that you're interacting with one another, it's just not, I think 1 Corinthians 13 says this, it's actually not loving. It's not loving to see someone making destructive behaviors for themselves in the presence of others and just kind of go along. It, it's not good. 1 Corinthians 13 says that real love, genuine love, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in sin. Not if it's true love. True love exposes the sin. True love, you can even perceive the sin for what it is and its destructive nature. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, this is what love does. He doesn't use the word love, but he is describing what loving actions are like. And by doing that, we're able to, and this is what he says, we're able to bring the broken person home. Because that's what love is for. Love speaks, it confronts, it invites, and then it holds again. That's what love does. One other example, so you can see like how Paul uses this chapter to really talk about a number of specific, and there are others, right? But here's another one. In, in, in the church in Corinth, when we gather around the Lord's table this, this morning, the way that we do it is not the way that they did it in the early church. In the early church, they didn't have big buildings like this, and so they were meeting in homes. And so they literally shared like a meal meal, not just a, a part of a meal, not just a cup and a chiclet, right? So it's not that, it's, it's much more than that, right? Um, or as Ryan called it this morning, a, a Jesus. Was that from Jesus? Yeah, a Jesus. Um, so it's not, it's really, it's not. It's, it's so much more than that. And so as they're inviting people into their homes, what they're doing is, is that they're still, you remember when it was like when you were a kid and there's only so much pizza and so you got to try to figure out how to get in the line and when can I get the second piece? Remember that game that you used to play? That whole, <laughs> thank you, Trace, for nodding so aggressively. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, listen, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I wish, here's what I wish I could pretend. I wish I could pretend like that's disappeared. But we had like a, a potluck, not that many. And I'm looking at the line going, Okay, they're watching me. I'm going to have to go last. I sure hope there's some of that left. I wonder if I can sneak some of that early, right? <laughs> like it's always, it's just, this is the way that we are. How do I get what I want? How do I make sure? I want somehow, I want you to have some, but I really want mine. I mean, I kind of bypassed 
Um, the, I was part of that group of people at our potluck that bypassed the food line to go straight to the dessert line. Fine, you guys are gonna get the best of the food while we're taking the desserts. That's what the group really decided. And so we went over to the dessert table and I made sure that I got some of Joe Ogle's coconut pie. It, and by the time I got there, it was still just scraps, but I got some. Where does that come from? Like what I did not do, and I'm not trying to be annoying with this, but what I did not do is that I not go around and say, well, did you get any, Alan? Did you get some pie? Because it's really, really good, and I would like you to have it instead of me. And, and on things that really matter, and the Apostle Paul says, the way that you gather around the table is so worldly. Like you make sure you have food. And, and then you enjoy drinking so much that it gets out, of, gets out of hand. Can you not tell? And here's what he says. He doesn't say, that is doctrinally incorrect. He says, that's, like, that's not who we are because it fundamentally breaks down in terms of what our relationship is based on and that is a love for God and a love for others. It's the two great commandments. To love God and to love others. That shapes how you walk up to a table and go, what am I gonna eat? That shapes how you read one another's Facebook posts. That, that shapes how you shop at Aldi. That shapes how you manage your evaluation at the end of the year or whenever it is that you have it at work. That shapes how you hear people speak to you. And it shapes how you speak in response. Like it shapes every aspect of our lives. And not just with everybody, as Paul likes to say, especially in the household of faith. So this is what it looks like to be loving. And so I've, I've, uh, I've actually freed myself, very grateful for my brother Terry, who said to me years ago after I had preached a series, and it was like seven weeks, so it was a serious series. And uh, in our prayer time, I don't know if you remember this, brother, I remember this, um, Terry, I, I thought I had cured all of our church's problems with seven really good messages, or at least five and then two that tried really hard. You know what I mean? And, and Terry said, yeah, it just doesn't work like that. I think I knew that, but I needed him to tell me. Like, these are things we're going to have to keep revisiting. And I've come to that, to that understanding. And, and so here's what I pray that we commit to as a body. Is that we are going to love one another so well and so true, so biblically, that we're going to come back and revisit these ideas and others. We didn't fully describe everything. But we are going to love God and love others so well that we are not going to let this go and we are going to learn to be better lovers for the glory of God, benefit of others, and our deepest joy. Because Paul looks at these people and says, kind of near the end of the chapter, yeah, like you're, you're acting like a Christian in a really worldly way. And so therefore, I just want you to know these are things without love these are, these are things that you either have or that you are or that you are not or that you will never have without love. And the first one he says this is without love, the way that you speak, even if you are really, really a good speaker, is nothing more than just an annoying noise. That's all it is. It's just an annoying noise. He says without love, I, he personalizes this, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
For Paul in Corinthians, that means there's an, it's not really discernible. It's not really understandable. That's a big thing for him. I would rather speak a few words that someone can understand than to speak in tongues that nobody can understand because we really need to understand in what's going on. And here in 13, the Apostle Paul says, is that without love, without the action of love, without the emotion of love, without love in its fullness, that what I say, even the deepest, most profound, most clearly articulated, in the end is just confusing, indiscernible noise. Verse one, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. This is something that the church in Corinth really prided itself in. There were philosophers that would go around and explain what life is like and try to get people to to own their way of thinking and their way of reasoning and their way of communicating. And then the apostle Paul says, yeah, I'm not playing that game. I've even determined to know nothing when I'm with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'm going to keep drawing people back to the cross. Oh, so that's what it's about. And the answer is yes. But because of love. Because of love is why we focus on the cross. Because of love, it's how we speak and when we speak. and what It's, it's all of those things. Don't reduce it to tone. And don't reduce it to the words that are being used. No, both are too reductionistic. The answer is yes. And if you do not have love in the way that we communicate, even the most profound things, if we do not have love, it's just noise. I don't want I, I to harp on this, but I think fair to say that it's, it's probably at least a big enough part of our lives that I I want us to do our best to redeem it. Can you ask yourself, whenever you're, whatever it is that your social media platform is, what I'm doing here, am I angry? Like, what I want to say here, am I just trying to stick it to somebody? Am I trying to make a stand? And, And by the way, we all have a very natural tendency to, uh, to, to, to ignore, I think, what's really going on sometimes in our hearts. We love to just try to pretend, well, no, but I meant the best. And, and sometimes I think I have said that, and I've wanted it to be true, but sometimes it's not true. So by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying don't. I'm saying, what if, what if you began to say, is what I'm about to communicate in this particular uh, form of communication, this particular manner of communication, which is so complicated, right? It's so complicated to read what's going on inside people's texts and emails and posts. So it's already a complicated medium. And, and now, which by the way, some of us use to kind of mask a different agenda. What? What if we begin to ask another question, which by the way, the answer isn't, so then we're not going to say anything. No, sometimes it speaks and sometimes it's silent. Don't, don't play the coward. Engage in love. Yeah, that's why I'm doing this. Well, I don't believe you. Okay. But I'm telling you, no, it's what I'm trying to do. It's what I'm trying to accomplish. 
It truly is best, right? What is loving is best, at least as I can perceive it. And, and that's why if it's at best, it, it becomes discernible, even though there might be some questions, even though we might need to clean it up a little bit. I love saying this to people that are kind of like afraid to say something. Well, I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it. I've, I've, I've grown accustomed to say, well, hey, why don't you just throw it out there and we'll clean it up? Like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to have it perfectly thought out or articulated. I'm not going anywhere. Like, you might need some time to think through this, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with you even kind of changing how you say it. Because I, I want this to be understood. And I want to understand you. See, without that, without that how then our communication is just information. And it's just broken. Do you guys see the Super Bowl, that amazing commercial with just all the, eh, the nattering back and forth? You know what I love is, is that at the very end of that commercial, it wasn't just kind of like, we should love one another. The answer wasn't love. The answer is who? Jesus. And then from Jesus, we have this picture of love that wants what's best. So I'm, I'm just saying that the Bible teaches that without love, your most noble ideas, your most articulated positions, and I know you think this really encapsulates what's going on. I don't understand why people don't get it. Could it be that one of the reasons why people don't get what we're trying to say is because we are not loving Could that be it? And by the way, I don't think that's all that it is. It's never all that it is. I think that's part of what it is. And that we can address. He also says this, without love, I am nothing. Without love, my language is indiscernible. Without love, like I really am nothing. Like all that I can do. So look at how he describes it, verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains, like wow, like you've got it all together. Wow, this is a person who has it all together. And look at all the things that you have and look at all the things that you do, which we closely tie, with our, or tie into our identity. And Paul says, if you have all of that to offer, and he's talking like in a church context, but you don't have love, and then I just want you to know that you're nothing. And he's not trying to belittle. He's just speaking a truth. Without love as the backdrop, then in the end, it is fundamentally broken and it keeps the system that it's in, the relationships that it's in, it keeps them broken. I, I really don't think we have information problems. I don't think that's the problem. I don't think it's just a matter of information or a matter of misinformation. That's part of it. And that is why if anybody tries to make you pick between truth and love, say, I'm not, I'm not playing that game. There is no truth without love, and there is no love without truth. That's what Paul describes. But he wants us to know, if you can do all these things, and you have all these abilities, I just want you to, I mean, you're moving mountains. And if you do not have love, it cuts to the very core of it. Like, you are nothing. 
challenging our very identity needing to be based on love because there's no way that you and I can fulfill the great commandment to love God and the second which is like it, that we would love one another more than ourselves if there is not genuine love. And Paul is pointing out, yeah, church is it's not something for people to remain childish or ignorant or self-focused or even issue-focused. Have you kind of been seduced into the idea of believing that because what you are really arguing for is an issue, then you can say it, speak about it however you want, because the issue matters that much? Even biblical matters? And this one hits. And it's more than tone. It's all of it. It cuts to the very heart of who we are. And Paul says, love has to be at the very heart of who we are. A love for God and a love for others. He, he then says, without love, all the great things that I do, like I gain nothing. Like not only are you not, can I not understand you, and not only like are you yourself somewhat like incomplete and vacuous, but in the end, like there is no advantage here. Look at verse 3. And if I give away all of my possessions because the poor need it, and if I give over my body because literally, like I'm willing to sacrifice it all, I'm willing to give up it all, he says this, in order to boast, but I do not have love, that I really, like I gain nothing. All of the sacrifices in the world that we make all of the best intentions that we want to drive towards. Now, now, by the way, what he's not saying is, and it makes no difference along the way. No, that's not what he's describing here. He is describing the fact that you and I ultimately are, are organizing our lives around appealing to and pleasing um, uh, uh, an audience of one and then living that out in a larger audience. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is that you and I can't just become so... Uh, issue focused we can't become so like need focused that in the end we we miss the how that we must relate with one another and so he describes like these amazing sacrifices that people make he says i just i want you to realize that in the end when all is said and done and this is what we all know those needs are going to persist like we, we're not going to solve the, the, all of the brokenness that exists in this world that's god's job it's his responsibility. It's the responsibility that you and I have, and this is where I think we, we get, we get uh, deceived, right? Is that we think what our job is is to fix all the problems in the world. I need to fix all the problems in the world. I need to fix all the problems in my life. I need to fix the problems in my marriage. I need to fix the problems with my kids. I need to fix all these problems. That's what I need to do. And I'm gonna work on all these problems. And I'm gonna take care of all the world's problems. And in the end, we forget that we can genuinely, what he's describing, I think so why he says like I have nothing or it's, it's indiscernible, that if love isn't the motivation, a love for God and a love for others, if that is not the motivation, then in the end, like we really gain nothing because they just continue. And so Paul is offering like a counter way of living life, but since this is to a church, as a response to who Jesus Christ is, that is more. It's all the wonderful issues of doctrine. It's all the wonderful issues of practice. 
And both of them are just wrapped in this tough, uh, very fibrous, very um, durable, enduring, emotive action called love. It just never lets go. It's tenacious. And so he says, this is what it looks like, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. And that, that doesn't just mean like it just sits there and takes it, although that's what it does sometimes. Love is patient. And, and one of the reasons why it's patient is because it's, it's waiting for the end. It believes in the end. And so in the end, it doesn't overreact to the immediate. Well, I'm going to be here for a while. We can do this. Love is kind. Uh, the Bible speaks about this in terms of a number of different things, but especially in the fruit of the Spirit, it talks about like, things like gentleness. There is a, there is a kindness. There is a, an inclining of the, of the heart and of the action that, that has a kindness that exists, which is so much more than just, you know, kind of this soft kindness, but it's actually like a very tough kindness. If you can have a tough kindness, it's like, yeah, like, I'm going to sit here. This is a turn the other cheek kind of kindness. Like, you're not going to rile me to the point where I'm going to start acting in a different way. Why? Because I love you. So I'm going to sit here. I'm not going anywhere. You're going to hear me repeat that idea quite a bit. Love does not envy, as Ryan taught us. It is very protective, but it does not envy because it trusts what it has. It trusts what it has as enough. It trusts what it has as being God's ultimate plan and purpose. And so there is not an enviousness that exists in it. And it is not boastful, proud, and it is not arrogant, and, and it's interesting, these, these four, whenever you look at a list that the Apostle Paul gives, you got to be careful believing that what he's trying to do is give like this exhaustive list and that he's going from, from, from small to great. Now, most often Paul's lists are more representative. It's, it's designed to give you a picture. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives a list of qualifications for elder. And I don't think he's saying these are all of them. He's saying, I want you to see what an elder should be, which is a man above reproach. And this is what a man of, what a, a man of unreproach looks like both inside and outside of the community. And so it's representative. In Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul says, this is what like, the sinful nature looks like. And he's not trying to list all the sins. He's not trying to list the worst of the sins. He's saying, I want you to know, like, if you see any of these in you or a collection of these in you, that I want you to know something is wrong and the spirit is not in you. He gives us the fruit of the spirit in the next paragraph. It's not that this is the only fruit, but, but to have the Spirit in you looks like this. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, this is what love looks like. It's patient and kind and not envious and not boastful and not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Yeah. I mean, that's at the very core of the idea, is it not? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. When, when people want to get married, they're so in love, and they're so excited about that love, and, and they know things are going to get complicated or difficult, but, 
the number of times when I have couples describe their parents' relationships, I was like, yeah, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know what happened to them. I'm going, everybody says that. Everybody says that. Everybody. And by everybody, guess what I mean? Everybody says that. What happens to us? Time. No. It's selfishness. I give them this picture. If you want your marriage to be just the way the Bible describes it, and I look at him and I say, you need to put all of her interests and all of her desires ahead of your own. Like under God's you know, authority and under what God's ultimate plan is, like you need to care more for her and, and put her first and you need to keep, and I can see his mind just kind of reeling. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to do that under these conditions. And what he's thinking is, by the way, is what she's thinking. Because then I say to her, and by the way, you need to do the same thing. You, you literally need to put his interests, like, about, well, and, and this is what they're both thinking. It's what you're thinking right now. But who's going to take care of me? What if he doesn't? What if she doesn't? And, and so what, what we do in our relationships is we walk in, not the way God asks us to walk into a relationship, which is to honor him and then to give of ourselves and then to trust like the reason why you're arguing with me right now in your mind is because you don't trust God and them. And so we, we kind of hedge our bets, right? And we hold back a little bit. And, and you're thinking justifiably so. Hmm. I get it. But love, genuine love, is not self-interested. It doesn't keep any record of wrongs. I had someone say to me one time, you know, this, this friend of mine, just my biggest problem with them is, is that they just, they remember every little thing that I did wrong and they always remind me of it. And then that person for the next like 30 minutes began to recount everything that this other person who was keeping the record of wrongs had done to them. And they couldn't even see it. And what, what makes that funny is, are you kidding me? And what makes that sad is that's probably all of us. You know that one person that just drives you crazy because they did such and such? Like, it's so hard to not do that. Love, and hear me, what love does is that love says, this is what I'm going to do with what is broken. This is what I'm going to do with my own interests. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to work through all of these things. I'm not going to hold this against you. But I'm going to trust that we can move beyond this. Verse 6, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Isn't that interesting? But rejoices in the truth. That, that is why any kind of love that finds pride in or welcomes or overlooks sin is not genuine love. Let me say that again. Any kind of emotion or action that you have towards someone else that perpetuates sin is actually not love. It's broken. And it ultimately will destroy the individual, the relationship, and the society. 
That is so demanding. Yeah, I know. And the only thing that can really offer a solution to this is love. That, by the way, is not rude and is not irritable as it deals with those problems. And it holds no, keeps no record of wrongs. And it's actually, the reason why it's doing this is not because of self-interest, but because of God-interest and his, their belief in that all of this is what's best for us. That is what the relationships should look like if 13, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians comes to life in us. It bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Literally, I think those four pieces are saying what love just never does is it just doesn't let go. And sometimes that looks in chapter 5, letting go in order to bring them back. And sometimes it's, no, in their face, I'm not going to let you go. But at the the very heart and the very core of it is a determination and a stick-to-itiveness that recognizes the value of people made in the image of God, broken or unbroken, as worth the cost, as worth the expense, as worth the time. Which means you and I can't give up. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 ends it with this. These, these, These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I've always wondered if that's true. Now, it's in the Bible, so it's got to be, right? How is that true? I don't think I have the answer for that. I've been spending a lot of time this week thinking about that. How is love greater than faith? And how is love greater than hope? Again, I don't even know if what Paul's doing is to try to to get us to compete with with, with them. He, He just really wants us to get a sense That all of these things together, which I think they mutually inform one another, have to have love as their very core source of meaning and purpose. Can I just say that I really believe that in our culture today, we have an opportunity. Last week I was uh, speaking in, in Utah and I had to do an interview beforehand because they had no idea who I was. Um, they just knew me as Max's father. Uh, and it's really weird after you're done preaching and everybody comes up to you and say, you know you sound just like your son? I'm like, seriously? I sound like my son. I don't think you understand like, how things work in sequence, but that's okay. Um, but I was asked this question, what, what do you believe that is like... Uh, like a cultural situation that is both a problem for the church and yet an opportunity. And, and maybe because this series was such a part of my thinking, I just said I do believe that right now because there is just so much this. And I used to get really bothered by that. I used to get even anxious by it. And now I see it as an incredible opportunity for you and I to go, yeah, we're not, we're not playing that game. Like, that's not how we act. That's not how we react. That's not, no, no, we are going to engage. Yep, no, no, we are going to continue to speak, and you might not even like what we say, but out of love, we got to say it. Like, we're going to continue, and we're not going anywhere, by the way. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to cancel you. We're just, but we're going to speak the truth in love, and then sometimes we're not going to say anything. We're going to turn the other cheek when it's necessary. You know what we're going to do? We're actually going to be so committed to you that these are the actions of love that we're going to do, and we're going to see God transform our hearts so that we could continue doing them. Do you realize that we have an incredible opportunity when you hear about just how the world is disruptive and argumentative? 
that you and I can give like a whole different way of dealing with marriages and families and relationships and the workspaces by going, I want to give you a, a different picture. May we not just offer up like a worldly version of being a Christian. I think that's what, we need to hear that. But a Christian version, a biblical version of being one. And Jesus did it. John actually says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he demonstrated his love for them in this. He takes off his outer clothing and he puts on this, this kind of this, this towel and then he begins to wash their feet and his disciples are looking at him. They're going, wow, you must really love us. You've seen nothing yet. This is not the greatest definition, but, but it's a big one. And Jesus humbles himself. One of the most difficult things about love and you'll know you're doing it well if you feel humble. And can I just say, I don't know how to escape this, that sometimes being humbled can look like humiliating. It just can. And we do it for those that we love. And Jesus demonstrated that. And so he said, I just want you to know, this is the degree to which I love you. And he took the bread, which represented his body, and he said, this is given for you. This is how much I love you. And I want you to take it, and I want you to eat. And so they ate it. He didn't say, I want you to think about it. He didn't say, I want you to feel about it. He said, I want you to receive it. And the cup, representing my blood, which is given for you. Take it and drink. This is how Jesus has loved us. And may it inform and inspire how we treat one another. I really think it's good for us to practice these things. And why don't we begin by practicing, by singing out to who God is. In a moment we'll be gathering and we're going to be even led in prayer that this could drive itself home. Um, but I pray that as we continue in worship that we are very, very aware of how God has loved us. And may we genuinely commit ourselves to love him and to love one another in the same way. Let us stand and sing and worship our great God.